And while you're grabbing a seat, you can grab your Bibles. If you need a Bible, we have some in the back there. If not, you can download one, download one on your phone if you want. Uh, if you're interested in what version I'm preaching out of, it'll be on the ESV. There's an ESV app that's free on the store if you want to use that. And we'll be in John chapter 11. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember this, but back in the day we had these things called physical Bibles. And so when we say turn your Bible, it was always this rustling. And now if you listen closely, all you hear is a little as people like roll down the scrolly wheels. John chapter 17, sorry, John chapter 11, verses 17 to 24 is our passage today. Uh, Let me open us up in a word of prayer, if I may. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we come to sit at your feet in your text, not at my words, but at your words. And yet you've uh, created this weird thing called preaching, Lord, where we take your word and we read it out loud and we break it down and explain it. And we look at the application of it to our lives, Father. And it's done at the hand of um, sinful men like myself, Lord, hopefully who know you and are helped by your Spirit. And then we sit there as people, um, some who don't know you, and, uh, and many who do. And the ones that know you, Lord, where your Spirit is in them, and you'll help them listen to you, get what you're saying, believe it. Um, Father, I pray that you'd help by that same spirit those who don't yet believe in you, that you would testify to their hearts, summon them out. Father, I um, thank you for this day, this Easter day. It's a sweet day for us to be able to gather together with our families and to have a slight shift in our spring schedules to celebrate the newness of life, to celebrate the newness of resurrected life and physical life. Father, so we just ask that you be with us now. I pray that you'd help us by your spirit as a preach, as we all listen to your word. Um, do a great, great work in our hearts. This morning, Lord, bring dead to life. Um, restore our hearts and refresh us. For the glory of your name, for the joy you promise. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I was thinking, um, as w- I was getting ready for this morning, Jesus is so unique. He's not an affirmer. You know, like socially in our world here, um, you, you have two categories. You're either a hater or you're a firmer. And um, Jesus is such an interesting one because, you know, even if you haven't read Jesus a lot, you generally know, you've heard probably that he's a nice guy. That he's really kind and merciful, feeds a lot of people, fish and bread and stuff like that, and healed people and was a, a good teacher is what most of the world would say he is. But Jesus was not an affirmer. Um, He didn't show up and tell you what you wanted to hear. The resurrection is actually him not even affirming death, right? Nothing in the the world is something that Jesus subscribes to. Jesus is king over all things. In our passage today, it's really interesting. Jesus comes into the scene, and it's the scene of of, uh, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And in the scene... Um, Jesus comes in and he's just not affirming anything, not affirming the natural plan that should happen, not affirming necessarily people's opinions of what they thought he should do, um, nor is he affirming this life as being the ultimate life, nor is he affirming goodness in us. He's not coming to say, hey, you know, coming to you, bunch of humans on planet Earth, just I was so stunned in heaven by how good you are that I had to take a field trip down to experience it myself and and high-five the whole world and say, it's all cool. 
It's all cool because you're good. I mean, Jesus just doesn't do that. Jesus came to intercept and intercede for the world and to teach us truth that we didn't know, to teach us the way that wasn't clear to us, to give us life that wasn't in us. He's not an affirmer at all. So the question this morning as we look at the text is, uh, I guess in my mind, if you know Jesus or don't know Jesus, do you expect Jesus to uh, affirm what you have going on already, or will you come to Jesus and lay it down and say, what do you have to say? What do you have to say? And will I listen to that, or will I say to Jesus that I am sharper, smarter, more true, and more good than you? So I would encourage you in your heart, um, undefend before Jesus this morning as he walks to this text. Easter is a celebration of Jesus coming back to life. And at that moment when he comes back to life, um, human existence changes forever, right? For the first time in all of history, death is reversed. Um, death is a final thing, right? No one undies, right? There's all this kind of legend and thought about there being spirits and afterlife, but no one undies. No one pops out of a grave. It's something we all face because all of us, um, our, great, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, the people around us, everybody, everybody, everywhere, all the time, die. Only one person has changed that, and that's Jesus. He's the only one who has resurrected and come back to life. He, he broke a rule that was never broken because he's actually the rule giver. And it's interesting that Jesus didn't simply evade death. Jesus broke that by going all the way into death. He didn't evade death. He died. And then from the middle of death, he rules over it and comes out of the grave. He physically resurrected. He's king over all things, including king over death. So that triumph of resurrection was a universally altering victory. But it's more than just a victory. It was demonstrating what he actually said he would do to us as well. Later on in this book, he will explain more of of what the resurrection means and details of it and through the rest of the New Testament, small portions of it, he unfolds on us of what the resurrected life would look like. And yet we only still have images of it, right? And we see Jesus resurrected. He does some pretty amazing things after resurrection. He apparently just moves right through walls and then firms up enough to eat some fish and then cruises right back out, poof, disappears. Seems to have the ability to alter his appearance so that people that know him very well can walk with him for a long period of time, and then all of a sudden say, see, I knew it was him, you know, and he probably wasn't wearing a full face mask or something like that. Like, the resurrected body of Jesus is, is something kind of mysterious to us. Some details given, but kind of mysterious to us. And he tells us that we will be with him when we actually see him face to face. We'll be like him. So, before he died and rose again, he spoke of this resurrection um, just a couple chapters earlier in the book of John in the scenario where we have Lazarus. Now, in this New Testament, there are two Lazaruses. You can divide those up. One is, one is a parable that talks about the, the security of God's word. Um, that's Lazarus who laid, who was at the, 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 the bottom of the table with the rich man, right? And the, remember the dogs licked his wounds and those kind of things. That's not a prescription for letting dogs lick your wounds. Bible study 101, okay, don't use that. Um, but, you know, he dies, and he, and he, and he goes, and, and he goes to be with, with God. He's in Abraham's bosom, strange name. And uh, he's, with, he's with, with Abraham there, and Abraham's taking care of him in his parable. And then, then the rich man dies, and he's down in hell. And uh, there's this interchange that Jesus tells about. It's not a real account. We think it's just a parable. But the kicker is, in the end, the rich man who's in misery saying, please, please, Abraham, send, send Lazarus, go back to tell my brothers so that they don't come here. And he says, listen, 
They have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament. If they they won't listen to the Old Testament, then a dead man walking will do them no good. The problem was obstinance. The problem was not a lack of information. God had spoken very thoroughly to them, even just in the Old Testament. That's Lazarus number one. This is Lazarus number two. Lazarus number two was the brother of two ladies, Mary and Martha. Um, They were good friends of Jesus. We we know that because our text tells us the beginning of this chapter that Jesus loved Lazarus and loved him a lot. In the beginning of this chapter, uh, Jesus in his ministry, and he receives word that Lazarus is sick, and the family wants him to come, and it says that he, hearing this, knew that Lazarus was sick. He intentionally waited a couple of days. Then he gathers up his disciples and takes a trip down to where Lazarus is. And on the way there, um, Jesus, Jesus says things in such a Jesus-veiled way so often. He Jesus wants you to really listen to him. Jesus rarely speaks in ways that you can just zoom in really fast, listen to what he says, and zip off to your life and get it. He says things in parables all the time and says things in veiled ways because he's expecting you, because he's the king and he's true and he's right, he's expecting you to come and really sit and settle down and listen to what he's saying and to sort it through. And he says to them in his very Jesus-veiled way, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so you may believe, but let us go to him. Now, most of us have known the story. We know in the end that Lazarus will be risen from the grave by Jesus. Jesus will stand outside the grave and say, Lazarus, come forth. And death obeys, and Lazarus obeys. And Lazarus comes hopping out of that thing all bound up, right, coming back to life. But this time, those guys don't really know that. Jesus is saying kind of veiled language, we're going to go to him. I'm glad, that, I'm glad that I wasn't there so you may believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus speaks in veiled ways. Be, be aware of that because God has always spoken in veiled ways. And one of the things that mark spiritual foolishness is they have eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's one of the signs of the heart that's under judgment is that God says things and we don't really listen to it. The parables are parables for that very same purpose. Jesus is coming to teach things. And he says it in a way that demands the listeners really sit down and think through what he's saying. Not just take a little peeky-peeky at it, but really wait at it. But the thing that marks those whose hearts were not right and obstinate towards the Lord is that they only listen for the time the voice is being said and they walk off. They don't have ears that actually hear. They listen, and they flee. So this morning as we go through this passage, and always as you read Scripture, pray your heart clear in that, saying, God, please, let me get what you're saying. Let me not just like tune in for just one moment in the busyness of my life that barely has time for you and then tune out. Listen to what Christ says. Let's pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 11. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany, where this happened, was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So she knows Jesus had the power to stop Lazarus from dying. She knew that he's the healer. And even now, her confidence has not waned in him. So she says, I know you could have stopped this, but even still now, in her words, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. 
And Jesus' response to her is, your brother will rise again. Martha, verse 24, says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Jesus' language of he will rise again ties into something that, that Martha would know. As a believing Jewish person, it's known from the Old Testament that people would have an eternal life. They would have a, a life after death. It's even in the very first book. We, think we believe the book of Job is the first book written. And the book of Job talks about resurrection in the very first book written in the Old Testament. So she, being tuned at that, knows that in the last day, in the last day being a term for the time when God would come back and wrap up human history, that there will be life brought back to those who would follow him. So Martha's aware of this, and so when she hears Jesus say this, it probably strikes her ear something like what we would say at a funeral, you know, we'll all be together with the Lord. And, and she's saying, I know, I know we'll all be together with the Lord in the end of the day. And Jesus takes that moment then upon what she says, which is that there will be resurrection in the last day to really unfold a little bit of something on her and not simply just affirm something. The good plan to Martha would have been that Jesus would have come and stopped Lazarus from physically dying. But that wasn't the best plan. That wasn't the real good plan. Jesus knew the real good plan. The real good plan was actually to let Lazarus suffer and die. And that in the end, Lazarus would agree this is the really good plan. And Martha would too. But he wasn't coming to affirm what seemingly was the natural good plan. And in that, he makes this statement that, um, that is a really a massive, massive claim. Now, a lot of us, if you grew up in church, uh, for whatever reason, we memorize this verse. Like this, and you get little kitty songs. I, don't sing them. Um, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live though he dies, right? So we have a bunch of little songs about it. But a lot of us memorize that verse. But I would say, um, I've actually never taught through this passage here before. And right now we're in Romans, right? We're taking a break for Easter. So I've never really gone through this passage. We did, we did John like six years ago, and I think someone else had, had this day. I don't think I've ever actually slowed down really well to look at the passage. And so it's kind of like one of those really amazing cool, expensive things that you have up on a shelf in the family's house that you don't really look at, just kind of zoom upon. It's just been there forever. And, uh, and maybe, just maybe, this thing comes, this verse comes off the shelf to you today. It's something that I, I would encourage you to think about in some of the things that are very clear about it that we'll talk about. But there are things in this passage that aren't so clear, that are probably some very deep waters that might be really helped by a long prayer time with a cup of tea or coffee for the Lord and just to meditate on it. When Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. When he doesn't simply say, I resurrect and I give life, but when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, that's a deeper thing than I give resurrection and I give life. But in the passage, we're going to learn that he gives resurrection and gives life. But that part of him being the resurrection and the life, that, my friends, is what God made coffee and tea for. To sit before the Lord and say, all right, let me not just see this and pass it over. There's something heavy, heavy, heavy here. And as I was reading commentaries this week, that's kind of where all the old dead guys leave it. They're like, there's some heavy stuff here. We're going to scratch the surface. We're going to hit what we can. But there are things here to really ponder on and look upon Jesus when he says this. So Jesus says, verse 25, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So our first, pro our first point today is Jesus promises life after death. Jesus promises light after death. Yes, Martha was right. Jesus could have prevented Lazarus from dying. 
But that's only the tip of the iceberg. It's only the tip of the iceberg. Not only could he prevent Jesus from dying, but here Jesus at the end of his ministry. You remember Jesus largely taught over three years, and he was letting the proverbial cat out of the bag sequentially as he went along. More and more and more of not only he was, he was helping Israel that had become very confused about the Old Testament and the point of it and the laws. They become very confused about that, so he's bringing clarity to that. But more and more, he's unfolding not only what always has been a right relationship with God, but he's also unfolding how that will actually be given through him because he is this guy called the Messiah. And he unfolds that over these gospel times. You watch him unfold it. And here at the end of this passage here, Jesus is unfolding some of the high points of what it meant for him to be that. He could have presented, prevented Lazarus from dying, but it's only the beginning of what he could do. He could do far, far more than simply keeping human li- humans alive for a few more years. He can resurrect them, and he can give them life. So let's start off with this. Um, what he does say clearly in here, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's not just the giver of those things, but he is clearly the giver of those things. Not just, but is clearly the giver of those things. Resurrection and life are all about Jesus. When he says, I am the resurrection, I am the life, she says, in the end, time, in the end day, people will be resurrected. He goes, I am the resurrection. I am the life. All of history is about Jesus in the end. It's not about humans. It's about Christ himself. And so Jesus doesn't fit into the end of all things. Jesus is the end of all things. Everything is about him. He says two things in here. I'm the resurrection, and that's explained in verse 25. And he says, I'm the life, and that's explained in, the, uh, that's explained in verse 24 with resurrection. In verse 25, I am the life is explained. In verse 25, just you can kind of look there. Just look a couple things we're going to notice out of there. Number one, resurrection, as it is explained by him, is this. It is found completely in him. He says, I'm the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. So this is him explaining resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. So a lot of us may think that humans, Christians for a long time, are just scared of death. And so we come up with this idea of like, oh, we can live after death. And let's get a Band-Aid and put on that, and let's name his name Jesus. And so Jesus is going to be the one who's going to give us life after death. That's not the case, actually. 2,000 years ago, Jesus brings up life after death. These are his words, his promises. So he says, resurrection happens. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. So someone who believes in Jesus actually dies and then actually lives after that. So four things we see in, verse, in this verse here. Number one, it's completely found in him. When he says, I am the resurrection, and believe in me, that means this is found in Jesus. This is not found in anybody else. I mean, some of you guys are fantastic folks, some of my favorite people in the whole world, but you're not Jesus, and you never will be. And there's no monk in the world that is Jesus. There's no woman or man or, or supernatural being out there that could ever be the one who would grant resurrection other than Christ. Number two, it's granted by him personally. It's granted by him personally. Jesus himself is the one who grants resurrection. He is the resurrection. Third, it is accessed by a very specific way, by you being good. No, not by you being good, because it actually says this very subtle thing, if you can kind of read it, whoever believes in me, though he dies, he lives. So this resurrection is accessed. And the only way the resurrection is accessed is if you believe in him. And finally, it is a post-physical death resurrection. So you actually die, 
and then you live. So this is not talking about a qualitative, eternal life is in qualitative life right here, right now. This is talking about after you keel over, you live. So four things we see clearly from what it means that we pick up that Jesus is the resurrection. And friends, this is obviously important because everyone you know either has or will die, including you, including me. It'll come to an end. We'll die. We all have to deal with this. And Jesus very graciously says, that's not the end of the story. The story doesn't end when you die. And he tells us something more. It's a universally relevant truth for us because no one we've ever seen on this planet has ever avoided death. Everyone always dies, but only one person has undied, and his name is Jesus. And not only did he come back and simply affirm the things that he already said, he didn't come back and go, okay, guys, maybe I oversold that a little bit. That's pretty rough. Um, he comes back, and he doesn't bat an eye. What he said before death and resurrection is the same thing he holds to after death and resurrection. And he commissions us to believe it and present it even to the point of death. That is Jesus' strong belief in his own words, personally tested to him by his death and resurrection. And not only has he come back, but he's promised, he has promised to provide for you there. So he has the information. And the information is not just a, hey, just so you know when you get there. The information is, this is what I will do for you when you get there. It's an amazing promise. Life after death, um, it's heaven with him. Not our idea. Christ is offering us the opportunity to live, to really live in eternal joy with him after we die. Our second piece is found in the next, wor- uh, next verse. And it's the resurrected life is eternal. So there's life after death. Verse 26 tells us when he says, I am the life, 26 is unfolding that. He says in verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I'm not asking that. He's asking that. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So three things we see from this little line here. Whoever believes in me shall never die. Number one, again, is found completely in him, not in another. So I know sometimes our sensibilities like to say, surely there's got to be a second savior. Surely there's got to be a universal access code to life after ever. No. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And so this life is found completely in him. Um, No morals, no other savior, no other supernatural system in Christ alone. So, you may, you may listen to this, and I'm not quite sure how you feel this, if you feel this. You may feel that you're good. And I'm not, I, I don't really understand how you'd feel you're good, um, being as I just turned 50, like, last week, um, in my 50 years of life. Um, one thing that is becoming apparently more and more true is that Scott Burns is not good in himself. Um, it's not in my nature. I needed someone who was good. I need someone to give me life that life is not going to be affirmed in me, that life is not going to be found in me, that life is going to be found in Christ, and that Christ gives me that life. So it's found completely in him. He says, I'm the life. Number two, this new life is eternal. Now, um, English is a great language. But a lot, the, the, the statement here is kind of juicy in the original language of Greek. Um, it literally says, they will know, not die into eternity. No, not, it's really chunky, right? But it is doubling down. Jesus is absolutely doubling down on this. 
when you experience resurrection from Christ in his hand after you die, you don't just peter out after about a thousand years. You don't just like fade out like a vapor. You don't ever, never die in all of eternity. So when we think through what is Christ promising, yes, promising forgiveness, yes, promising life after death, but he's telling us in clear, clear terms, you live forever. And I know, Groundhog Day concerns. You might have had that one before, thinking, okay, man, how many cool days can I enjoy in a row? And that's a real legitimate concern. But that's where we understand who Jesus is. Jesus is the life. You're not going to be set free like some like, like a feral animal into the fields of heaven just to go like dig in the, the streets of gold and water ski the glassy lake and to do this and that and this and that. Like You're not an animal. You are going to be conformed perfectly into the image of God and you're going to be all about Jesus. Jesus, the one who stands in the center of heaven, he will continually, day after day, hour after hour, unfold the amazing nature of his grace and his goodness and his love and superiority, and he will blow your mind for eternity, and you will not have a groundhog day. You will never go, I just, God, can you just put me down like an old horse? I mean, I've really enjoyed this for 10,000 years of heaven, just getting to do my thing. You're not going to just do your thing. Your thing will be the new thing. You will love the Lord. He will amaze you. You'll see him as he is, and you'll be like him. And you won't get bored, and you won't be sad. He will change us. He's doing it incrementally now. You know, like our records, for anyone trusting Christ right now, our record before him is truly um, a pure record. It's forgiven. It's cleansed by Christ in, in heaven. But right now, what's really happening in our hearts and our minds is that we are, we are sequentially being changed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. When we go to be with him, when he resurrects us from the dead, that is cured. That is perfected. And so no longer is it incrementally. We are made like him. And then what actually does increase, though, is not our likeness. What increases is the unfolding of his glories before us forever. This eternal life is found. How do I know that? At the end of verse, this verse here, 26. Whoever believes in me shall never die. So, whoever, so watch the, the, the trend here. And, whoever, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die you won't be done believing in Jesus. See, sight, physical sight, when we see Jesus, that does nullify faith. We're no longer going to walk by faith, we'll walk by sight. But sight is not going to nullify belief. You and I, if we know him, are going to go on forever and ever and ever amazed by Christ, trusting Christ, following Christ, walking after Christ. We will ongoingly believe him. You believe him now for salvation, and we're given a life. We become lovers of God you will go on to be a perfect believer in Jesus Christ. So when we receive our new life after death, we go on because life continues to be about Christ. We will need him no less. He is the son in heaven. We will believe him. He's offering us life with him, not just some big heaven. So I don't know. I, I, think, I think that one of the great tests and a helpful test is, um, and I, I think some old smart people came up with this one, and I can't remember which ones they are, but we'll just say it's my chest. I made it today. Can you imagine, can you, could you possibly be happy in heaven without Jesus? A heaven where Jesus had a checkout. Could you be, could you be happy there? Because if you could, it's not heaven. It's not heaven. Heaven is defined by the presence of Christ. So one may not actually like the idea of heaven once they realize Jesus, 
not autonomy is the center of it, it is the center of our loves. We get changed. And it's a fantastic, wonderful thing. If he just gave us autonomy, haven't we tasted that enough? You know, everything you ever wanted to acquire, once you acquired it, it was good for like 10 minutes, maybe a month, I don't know. Every, the love of every person you wanted, that turned out really hot and amazing, didn't it? Right? Uh, because they failed you, and you failed them, and you've grown cold to it. All the things that you dreamed of, all the experiences you hoped for, you wanted to go on that great cruise. You did. You saw some really great things. And next. Right? Everything we hope for that we think would make us happy, there's just foretastes of Christ. Only Christ gives satisfaction that lasts. Only Christ could be the center of heaven. So Christ offers this amazing thing. The life of Christ, uh, the life Christ promises is eternal. It's without end and it is filled with the ongoing belief in Christ. Christ is the center of us forevermore. And that's not so much always true of us right now, even those that know Jesus, right? Um, but we'll be perfected in that. And while we struggle to believe that now and we fail, um, he will perfect that for us in heaven and we won't fail and we'll taste perfect delight and perfect joy in him. The third then, our last piece of verse 27 is, what then must be believed about Jesus? What then must be believed about Jesus? Verse 27, her response after him saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. She said to him, and he said, do you believe this? She says to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Um, you know, Martha gets some bad rap sometimes if you're reading other places in the New Testament uh, where it talks about Martha and Mary and one doing the better thing. But here is an amazing thing that Martha does. Martha understands she's been listening to Jesus. She's been listening to the grand plan of God of what he's doing. And she understands who he is. He is the healer, but he's more. He's the resurrection and the life. And really to her eyes, Jesus just completely upgraded what the Messiah was to her. She didn't understand that he was the resurrection and the life. He just upgrades it. And he says, do you believe this? And her response is, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming in the world. So the question is, if you get life after death by believing in him, and if, li and if life ongoing in heaven forever is about believing in him, what do we believe about him? She tells us, we believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming in the world. So a couple things we notice from here. Number one, who is he? He's the one, according to this verse, that's coming into the world because he didn't start in this world. Jesus has always been God, becomes man when he becomes a baby, and has that humanity. He's fully God, fully man, keeps his humanity even now into heaven where he's still fully God and fully man, coming into the world because the world needed him to come in and bring his truth to us. He's the divine one who was prophesied from the Old Testament who would be the rescuer of the enemy. He's not merely a man or a prophet. He's the divine son of God. Number two, he is the true king. That Messiah, he's the true king. The utterly good king, the utterly good one. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? If you think that believing in Jesus simply means you believe that he will save you for eternity, it's more than that. You have to believe who he is. Jesus claims that he is the good king, the good one. Not just the right one, not just the authority, the good one. He's the way, the truth, the life. And so Christ comes to you, and this is what it means to trust Christ, is that really he is the definition of good. There is no shadow in him. There is no plan B to him. He is good. Not your own thoughts about yourself. Not your own natural dreams for yourself. Not 
our own identifications and how we like to think things and how we want to be affirmed, Jesus affirms that he is good. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Yes, it means to believe that he is the Savior, the one who saves those who ask him. But saves you to what end? Saves you to be underneath him. Saves you to be in a relationship with him where you're no longer a six-foot-tall, 60-year-duration rule maker. But now you're a person that looks to him and says, Jesus, I want to sit your feet. I want you to tell me what is true. You're true and you're good. Um, and this is where I think, I think this is so helpful. I think it's so helpful. So don't, don't run from this if you find this. Do you ever find that Jesus says things are good in the New Testament or Old Testament that you don't think are good? Do you ever find that he says things about sexuality that you think are kind of awkward? Do you ever find that he says things about money that you don't like or anger or forgiveness or identity? Do you ever find that Jesus kind of chafes you a little bit or says things that you say, surely this can't be true because I already know something else is true? Let him push in on that. Remember, Jesus didn't come to affirm you. Jesus came to define you. Jesus came to guide you, to bring you life, to be the way. So don't run from the spots where you find that what Jesus says intercepts and agitates things that you hold to be true values in your heart. Let him shine there. Take those things and say, so Lord, I, I think this, but you seem to say something different. Um, help me understand what you're saying, number one. But number two, what will you do with that? Because at the end of the day, if Jesus says something is good, but you think it's bad, will you submit to Jesus and say, well then, I was wrong, because you're always right. And not only are you right, you're good. The thing that I held formerly that is in opposition to what you said, that I understand now, and I confess that that was bad. I called bad good. Just like every human in the world does. That's our problem. We call bad good. We don't call God God. We call something else God. That's what Jesus is doing. He's coming in because we have this problem where we call bad good. And he comes and he defines. He lays it out in front of us. And so my friends, number one, the saving work of Jesus is not going to make sense to you, nor is it even needed if you don't want Jesus as the good one, the good king. But I call you. Have you, list, have you listened really? Have you read what Jesus said? Have you listened to the claims that he made? And then number two, Look who he is as he says those things. What kind of king is he that makes these claims? Do you have a better one? Are you better than Jesus? We're not better than him. So how do we get these things? We believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the good king, and he is the king who saves and eagerly saves everyone who runs to him. Because our problem isn't the lack of proof, it's obstinance. Uh, we may think, well, I would believe Jesus if you could see him. No, you wouldn't. If you hear God's word and it doesn't move your heart to believe, if you saw Jesus, you wouldn't believe him. I'm just telling you, you wouldn't. How do I know? Because the New Testament is full of people who saw Jesus. They heard the words coming out of his mouth. They saw him hanging there on a cross. They saw him like just multiplying fish and loaves out of a basket. They watched, they watched him call a dead man out of a grave, a man who had stank four days. Literally, it's in the text. Behold, he stinketh. Right? They watched these things. And they can't say they didn't happen. Their only solution is let's kill the guy a couple chapters later. Seeing doesn't fix our heart problem. Our heart problem is obstinance, not ignorance. So my friends, 
Let Jesus be the resurrector of your soul. Let Jesus be the resurrection to you. Let him be the life for you. He comes out of such sweet mercy. He comes and tells us, come to me. Come, taste and see that I am good, that I am merciful, that I will give you life forever after, that I will satisfy your soul. He will, and everything you've chased in your life hasn't, and you know it. In the end, is amazing, amazing thing said by the same apostle in 1 John 3, 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, in this amazing turn of events, comes into this passage shortly before raising Lazarus from the dead and says, I am the resurrection, I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me, oh, he goes on forever and ever. He will surely never die. And the real question from Jesus to you this morning is, do you believe this? And if you don't in this moment, you can look to him in prayer and say, yes, I do. I do. Save me, Lord Jesus. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for sending your son to die on the cross and to rise again and to give us life. And so we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and all that that does. And Jesus, we sit at your feet proclaiming you are the resurrected one and you are the resurrection, you are the life, and you give it. And it is found in you and no other. So Father, please save souls this morning. And I pray for your children that know you. Lord, let them have great confidence that you are doing this work and that you will continue to change them, though you love them perfectly and that they have a wonderful future ahead of them where they will live forever with you, um, perfectly believing you, perfectly enjoying a life that will never, ever, Christ's name we pray. Amen.